thanks for joining me today on Night Talk Shit and Read. My name is Ro and I'll be your host. Today I'm talking to London-based author Tasha Suri about her debut novel, Empire of the Sands. It's a world set in medieval India and it's about a girl named Mahara who's the illiterate daughter of a powerful nobleman and a woman from a despised nomadic people known as the Amurthy. Mahara inadvertently lets on that she has magic and that she can use that magic to manipulate the dreams of sleeping gods and comes to the attention of some seriously powerful people who have every intention of bending her abilities to their will. So I got given Empire of the Sand by Ellen at Orbit. She mailed it to me and she said, I think you like this. Okay, there's a dagger on the cover. Cool title. It's blood magic. <laughs> I am in. And so then I started reading it. I was like, okay, I don't know who this woman is, but I think she might be my greatest favorite person in the entire world. So... <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's it's a really brilliant book. I don't think I've read anything like it at all, ever. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Um, so I was just kind of wondering, like, when you were deciding on, you know, I know you said you wanted to kind of write from your own experiences and your obsession with history, and you picked two really good ones that I now feel the need to go and research more about. What kind of made you settle into um, to the story and the world that you decided to build? Which bits of history sort of um, drew me into it, do you mean? Well, I know you said, um, I've seen in some previous interviews where you said you kind of liked Ottoman Empire and they talk about that this book is inspired I cannot pronounce the word properly and I don't want to butcher it it starts with an M Mughal yeah I it's, it's a funny one because not to go on a tangent but I'm now going to go on a tangent I really didn't like history at school I couldn't get into it we did World War Two about 300,000 times um, and I think also it didn't really speak to me because I am South Asian so I'm British Indian and I didn't really see myself in those pieces of history, even though, of course, there were South Asian people in those parts of history. But that aside, um, and it was really nice when I finally started exploring Indian history in particular, because I started seeing people who were a little bit like myself. And I started seeing stories, because that's all history is, about people who were like me. And I've always loved fantasy, and I've always loved reading um, historical fantasy. So I love things like Kushiel's Dart, which is inspired by, I think, the Renaissance period and the medieval period. And I really wanted to bring my interest in history and history about people who look like me together with my interest in fantasy. And the Mughal period was really good for that because it is opulent and diverse and interesting, and it has loads and loads of content to work with to create a story. And I think in particular what inspired me about the Mughal period more than anything else was the women. Okay. So <laughs> I think it's fair to say most of history is super sexist. Fair? I think. Yo, yeah. Just a little. <laughs> just, just a touch. <laughs> so I kind of went into reading about the Mughal era thinking it would be pretty bad because when you think about or what, when I used to think about as a teenager about something like Purda, the, the concept of women being in harems and not being visible to men and being veiled, I thought that's like, you know, really high level patriarchy going on. But I was surprised to discover that although, yes, it was a patriarchal society, much like all of them, women in the higher echelons of society had huge amounts of power and agency. They owned their own property. They had the right to divorce. They could remarry, which is something Hindu women of the similar period could not do. They they had huge economic clout. There was one woman who essentially ruled the empire through her husband, the emperor. And I thought, wow, I really want to look at the kind of power a woman who's raised in that kind of courtly environment would have. And that was the inspiration for the book. Well, that's completely and utterly amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, when I was reading it, I was starting the beginning of the book and you were giving the descriptions. I was like, okay, so it's veiled society. And so I started looking things up. And a lot of the things that you're saying now make a lot of sense with respect to how built the world building and you built your characters because nobody felt like they weren't in an unequal position. And I loved the way that you kind of packaged everything around knowledge and choice and power rather than feeling like you had to choose between these prongs. And I like the way that some of like even the male characters, there were certain parts in the book where, you know, it was about protecting the woman's right rather than just the man's honor or his power or his sense of dignity. And I and I haven't read many books that talk about especially Southeast Asian cultures. I'm from the South and I'm black. So I understand the whole, you know, learning of history and going, yeah, we're not in here. Or if we are, that's not really us. Okay. So when you were blending all these things together and you were building your characters, it seemed like there was a, a very unique balance that you put between making your male characters feel three-dimensional and urgent, but they all seem to have this kind of emotional urgency and grounding that I don't necessarily see very often. It's particularly in, you know, magic-driven fantasy where the protagonist is a woman. It seems some people, even women writers, feel like there has to be some underpinning of real support coming from a male character and your story layout and the way you opened up the story and designed it never really felt that way. Was that intentional? Did it happen by accident? I think there's like a few things that play for me. I, I can't do short answers. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, I, I'm I, perfectly okay for long ones. <laughs> so the, so Mughal society was, I think it's often called homosocial because men would interact with men and women would interact with women. That's one of the kind of consequences of a veiled, um, segregated society. So I knew that I wanted, or I would need to write a world where women had really strong relationships with other women. So that was something that I really wanted to bring into it. But when it came to men, I've read a lot of fantasy and a lot of romance and I know what I, what works for me and what doesn't. So on a really shallow level, you know, consent is sexy and and men in a patriarchal society who respect women but more than respect but treat them like equals when the system around them doesn't encourage equality that's something I like to see it feels like a really right thing that should be there in the world and it often isn't so it's nice to see it in fiction and I also think that on another level South Asian men this is sort of a a side point, don't get to be the heroic, attractive and egalitarian love interest that white heroes often are allowed to be. If you look at a lot of the kind of stereotypes of the harem, be it in the Ottoman Empire or the Mughal Empire, these men are sort of seen as these lecher is it lecherous? Lecherous? Despots. Yeah. And I just didn't want to do that. So it was really nice to be able to not do that, basically, apart from, you know, the evil characters. Well, even with your usual characters, it seemed like they were still more purpose and focused on what their outside goals were. So when you were building the story, like when Mer is at the beginning of the book, she's naive and, but it's naive in the typical way that some young protagonists are in fantasy books. Like they feel, you didn't infantilize her, you made her a real product of her environment. So she mm -hmm. lived in a sheltered environment. She had a stepmother who was less than enamored with the idea of having someone else's children, particularly a child that could bring risk to her home and endanger her husband's power base. And you had a father who couldn't bring himself to let his children go, but he also was unwilling to lose his power, and partially because of how it protected his children and partially because he believed that's how he could best serve his empire. And then you have this great empire that seems to be going on in perpetuity 
towards further and further greatness and of course you know imperialistic rule colonial tendencies and you know Mm -hmm. subjugation of those that get in their way but everything came together in such an organic way when you wrote the story because first you start learning about Mare and what's going on with her and but you never got the sense of she's stupid and as someone who reads a lot of fantasy and reads a lot of YA fantasy and and sci-fi it's really refreshing to have a lead female protagonist protagonist who's young who you actually believe her entire emotional story arc as she grows up in the book oh thank you i'm really <laughs> glad to hear that i often think that yeah it's, it's quite difficult to balance having a naive character and having a non-stupid character but meher i i always felt like her personality very strongly i knew what i wanted her to be and how i wanted her to be she's always trying to do the right thing, even if it's not what other people necessarily think is right. And she tries to use knowledge to do that. But obviously, because she lives in that kind of sequestered environment, there's only so much knowledge she can get and only so many ways she can get it. And that makes her life very difficult. But I also think that is kind of true for a lot of people today. You know, when you're dealing with family members or um, in difficult situations in your life, especially when you're young, you don't have all the information and all you can do is use the information you have to try and make the right decisions. So I feel like that, for me, that really resonated because that was my experience of being a kid and being a teenager and being a young woman. And I think that's true for a lot of other people too. No, no, it really worked. And it made it made the whole story have a different kind of feel. And it made the relationship she was developing kind of surprise you. I gave this book to my friend and I think he's a couple chapters in and he texted me and said, why did you give me a book with the evil stepmother storyline? I don't want to read that. And I was like, keep going. You're welcome. But but it it was really kind of refreshing because even the relationship she had with her stepmother and how adversarial it was and it was combative, all of those were things that were teaching her lessons. And even when she wasn't, you know, learning the lesson that her stepmother wanted her to learn, everything turned out to be something that she vitally needed to have as a part of her character. Mm -hmm. And at her, you know, her base level of, I know I can survive this. I know I can, you're nothing compared to who I've already dealt with. I'm, I've dealt with a better manipulator than you kind of situation. Yeah. And that's also something that's really rare in books, especially when you get a book where someone has magic that's being coveted by another person and that it's particularly for a nefarious purpose. But you didn't neglect the relationship with the stepmother. It would have been really easy to kind of keep it superficial. She's bad. She doesn't like her. She hates her. She wants her to go away. But you put so much depth and care into that relationship that it was impossible not to see how the lessons that she learned from having to interact with someone like that served her well later in the story. I'm trying really hard not to spoil. But (laughs) (laughs) I mean, thank you. I mean, I I actually love her stepmother. I think I, I don't love her as a person. Like, I wouldn't want to meet her. But I think that often people who are really awful to us in our lives have very good reasons or what they believe to be very good reasons for what they do and her stepmother does have very good reasons they live in this really stratified society and meher refuses to give up the tradition she got from her mother and those traditions put not only her but her family in danger and that's a very reasonable fear as it, as it becomes clear in the book so her stepmother's trying to do the right thing always trying to do the right thing but that doesn't mean that it is the right thing you know i i actually don't love this evil stepmother storyline either it's not my favorite thing when i read and yet i really wanted to do it because i was like maybe i just don't like it because i don't think it's done right and obviously i think i can do it right so i went and, and tried well i think it worked really well because i got wrapped up in it i was like okay is this 
this this is where this is going because I was I didn't read anything about the book I didn't even read the insert I got when I got it I just sat down and read it all the way through so I didn't actually know you know if this was going to be a situation to where her heritage from her mother was going to be a problem in her household like as in she's doing something and it brings like the gods down upon her house or if this was a conduit to something else so the relationship with the stepmother and the relationship that she built with her sister and barriers to her having a relationship into why it was such a, a beautiful way to learn about this society it was an amazing way and the descriptions you gave were really vivid and really lush but they felt very grounded so having the relationship that she had with her stepmother is something that people are going to be able to identify with I mean there are plenty of people who have families that have a, a new person that comes in and you know not all of those transitions go well when families blend so no they, they really don't and and I think like everyone I know who's been in that position where they've had that kind of family strife has worked really hard to understand the perspective of the person they don't get on with. Every friend I've had goes, oh, my so-and-so did this, my my dad's girlfriend did this, but these are her reasons, but this, maybe if I did this, this would happen. And I think that feels real as well. And the way you wrote it, that's kind of how it came out. There was there was the one scene where she just kind of got that little dig in where she was like, she is my sister after all, to her stepmother. And then it kind of goes into the explanation. And you start to realize that this is a woman who married a man who has power, who has two illegitimate children who she's going to be expected to raise. And one of them very clearly is beyond the age at which she could mold her in her own image. And she physically looks like a member of this greater society that's an outcast clan, you know, of people. And there's no way that she's going to be able to make that fit in her world. And she's never had any children of her own. So that's a whole lot to have to unpackage, to take on. And the whole idea that you built into the story, that there's this cultural understanding that a woman takes on a man's responsibilities and his burdens, that I thought the way that you presented it and then wove it into the story, as well as giving you a rich understanding of the history of the world you were writing in was really unique was that kind of was that a different or a difficult dichotomy to to manage or to keep balance because I don't think I've read it anywhere else the way you did it um I'm really glad it worked I think no I'm really glad it worked but for me I drew that pretty much from Hindu theology so I'm a Hindu by religion I guess family religion and there's a concept in Hinduism of um dharam which is like your your life's duty or kind of how you should live your life at different stages according to your religious duty and I remember reading somewhere it's probably not what theologians believe now necessarily the idea that a woman's a woman doesn't have her own dharam her dharam is her husband's and I was like that's some bullshit right there (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was like you don't get your own but you know to be fair even when women die their names are put in their husband's family book there's like a, a death book which is by a river in India it's a long story and not in their maternal family's book and another thing because this happened to my grandma when you get married traditionally historically not today as far as I know your name would change as well so your first name would change when you got married so everything about you was tied to your husband's family and to his identity not to your own so yeah I lifted that wholesale because it sucks but it's also a very interesting concept and it's a lot of fun for lack of a better word for me and kind of just creatively interesting to take things from my own religio-cultural mythological background 
that I kind of don't necessarily think about on a day to day because they're just things I grew up with and put them into fantasy because it lets me kind of interrogate them as well. I thought it was really interesting because all those elements really worked, but they kind of hit recognition chords for different things from Mm -hmm. the way that I grew up. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting to know that that carries over into a different, from, you know, that it's like one of those cultural things. It's like the, the, almost every society and world has a flood story if you go back far enough. It was kind of like you were telling elements of the story and the relationship between people. And I'm like, well, that's really cool. And that totally sucks. And that would be super amazing if there was this absolute one thing upon which women always had choice and no one could fuck with it and so the way you were weaving in and out of it 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 felt really natural so it's interesting to know that that comes from your own cultural background oh yeah I mean the thing about an inviolable choice did not come from my cultural background though like women didn't get that choice Um, that's what made it so cool when you read it and you saw the way that you inserted in the book and I'm like that feels real you that feels like that (laughs) I like it though because it didn't stick out as not working because the way you explain the world and the the system and, and the the hierarchy and it worked and the way that you built female power next to male power individually and separately within the household you know and then within the greater society and then the ways in which you could you know keep yourself safe or manipulate circumstances to your advantage when it got to the parts where I was pretty sure you were deviating hard I was still not sure because it fit so well with the <laughs> world you built. I was like I was like did we lose this as society or did we go backwards into some even deeper ridiculous patriarchy because this is cool but yeah (laughs) you know but in a world where you can't even make a Gillette ad without somebody thinking that oh god that ad (laughs) I see I just reread this book because I was um you you just have a way with certain lines that kind of resonate with anybody who's kind of lived in the south and has had to go through places where the trappings of colonialism are not really that gone for lack of Mm. a better way to say it so yeah you know when you say they've built a world on the backs on the necks of the Amarthi, but there's nothing of them here. I was like, oh, hey, hi, that'd be my own hometown. Used to be Ooh. a slave town, and you cannot tell. You know, they even got rid of the places where um, the slave graveyards were. They, I was like, they just they just they even desecrated Holy Crown just to completely obliterate what was there before. So you know, you have all these just moments where you just he- read that line or you see it, or you know, another line where her old nursemaid is saying, "People aren't tools," and then you find out later that not only is this young girl extremely intelligent but she has the ability to be a supervillain if the possibility happens so building that in into a world where we can't actually even have a conversation about maybe we've advanced enough to where people can kind of take a hard look at their personality and not Mm -hmm. lean into their worst natures it felt really relevant and contemporary it's it's interesting because I've I've said in a lot of interviews that I'm really happy that this very South Asian story is universal, but there are ways in which I'm not happy that it's so universal. I think the kind of the atrocities of colonialism and imperialism seem to be very consistent across the world, which I really wish they weren't because they say something about human nature. But, you know, I'm I'm a pessimist about human nature <laughs> generally. But at the same time, I do I'm very much one of those people who's like, well, the only thing we can do is hope that love will save us all because what else do we have? And yeah, that's what I do in fiction because God knows the real world is a lot. <sighs> but it yeah. Works. But it but it really works because you're reading this and you don't ever feel like you're trying to force an agenda down anybody's throat. And I hate saying that because I really feel that that is a very male oriented way to say, hey, somebody said something that made me have an emotional moment and I feel like they're trying to help <laughs> But I'm taking the word agenda back. It's mine. I didn't really feel like you were trying to push anything other than the actual story that you were telling and that you just built the world so well and you had a main character, you know, that was just so, I don't want to say she's perfect, but I kind of feel like she was perfect. (laughs) 
I mean, come on. She's strong. She's intelligent. She learns from her own mistakes. She listens to the people around her, but she listens with a grain of salt. Just, you know, not too much to kill her, but enough to realize somebody might be bullshitting her. Uh, (laughs) You're not trying to tell me that you haven't read a lot of fantasy people where you're like, they just did the same thing five times. Why in the hell have you not learned that this person's not your friend? Oh, I've read so much fantasy like that. Yeah. 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 So when she actually ended up in the situation that we'll just call it her in captivity, because I really, really, really don't want to spoil. But I will tell you, when it got to the point where uh, she had upset her father and he made his choice, I screamed and said, this is a bad move. This is bad chess. I'm like, you're going to regret this. Is just, I threw the book. <laughs> had to get up and go get it and then I get to the next pet chapter and I was like see I told you this shit was a bad idea not see what you did see what you did see this is when I know there's joy and happiness in my life for a book when I'm now yelling at inanimate pages they're they're tangible they can't hear me but I'm screaming and I'm damaging the walls in my apartment because I'm now throwing the book because the shit that's happening is the action and the world starts to get real you can't see my face but I'm just grinning so hard this is the loveliest review I've ever had well it's true okay I if you could see my house there's one room in my house it's solely dedicated to genre fiction and it's full of books and then there's the wall of books in my living room for the things that I know I'm going to keep forever and reread you're on that wall this book is really good which is why you are the very first interview that I'm doing for a new podcast it's going to be called I talk shit and read that I'm launching on one of the outlets that I write for for MTR network when I was trying to think what kind of books that I want to talk about to people what books that I want to recommend to people you know own voices stories was key but not just because I'm black and I want to read black people stuff with black people people doing black people shit in black people worlds without someone <laughs> telling me that black people don't do that but I wanted to I know that's just sounds terrible <laughs> but true I'm crying <laughs> but I wanted to read those from all the different societies so I was like oh a Southeast Asian story I don't know a damn thing about that cool and then to read this and then to go, I'm like, wait a minute, did that actually happen? Cause that sounds like it. Con-. And I go to read, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm not stupid. That actually happened in history. So for you to write something that was so well done and to lay a, a, a purely fictional story with an amazing magic system and some cool ass, yes, these are technical terms, you know, entities and deities <laughs> <laughs> in it, but to delay it over history that a lot of people, especially in the United States, we get the worst skewed history of anything coming out of Southeast Asia up into and including the point that a lot of people don't realize that when you say Asian as the continent, India is there. Yeah. You know, so history's failed us here. So thanks for the, you know, I mean, there's one thing I'll say, and please don't feel bad about this. Uh, Southeast Asia is different from South Asia. So Southeast. I told you history has failed me. (laughs) No, it's fine. I didn't know this until recently. I remember someone talking about East Indians and I was like, what is that? But there's just lots of different terminology. I think Southeast Asia is like, no, I'm not going to say because I'm going to get it wrong. I think, I think Indonesia and Malaysia. Watch me hit Google so neither one of us is wrong. Okay, so so if we say Southeast Asia, it looks like we're talking around South of Japan, Korea, China, Papua New Guinea, so like Singapore? Cambodia? Wait, China's Southeast Asia? Allegedly, I think these people are lying to us. Oh, I don't know anything. I don't either. How are we... Okay, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore are the main ones that come up underlisted for Southeast Asia. Does that sound closer to being right? That sounds right. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. Okay. And then if you just say South Asia, you get the map that's just red because someone in Google land is lazy. Yep. It's, um, 
If someone said South Asia to me, I would probably say Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, maybe Sri Lanka as well, I think. Yeah, I think so. I would probably throw Bhutan and the Maldives, but that's because they're the ones I know. (laughs) 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 I want to orient them somewhere in my life. So for clarity, we should say South Asia when we're talking about your story. Yes. Okay. I mean, it doesn't bother me or anything. I just... I like, hey, I don't want to be wrong. I'm anal retentive and have control issues. I want to be correct in all the things I can be because I'm pretty wrong often for shit I can't control. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) But this is the kind of thing I like. It's like I pick up this book, I read this book, and it made me go look up some history. It made me look up geography. It made me curious about the part of the world And the time in history that you were writing about. And as much as anybody from any culture or ethnic background can write about something else, there's just something uniquely interesting with it coming from someone who can give you a more personal perspective and understanding of the things. Because you care differently. I'm so glad you say that. I mean, before I wrote this book, I hadn't really written anything that was inspired by India, partly because... I've been brought up in England, in the UK. I don't speak the languages of my parents. So India has many languages, but I don't speak Punjabi and I don't speak Hindi. I I understand them, but that's pretty useless in communicating because it's a two-way street. So I always kind of like, and I used to kind of get called a coconut, you know, brown on the outside, white on the inside. So I felt really nervous about writing about Indian culture in any way because I thought, what right do I have to do that? Which, you know, you you have people from completely outside the culture who quite happily do it. And I didn't want to do it. Uh, Yeah. Very badly. (laughs) (laughs) But then, like, I told myself, if I research, then at least I'm doing my due diligence. And then if people are not happy, so be it. But then actually, once I started researching and writing, I realized how much of me is actually shaped by my family culture you know what I mean like yeah I found more of myself in doing it which was lovely and that I don't think you can beat and I don't think you can get that anywhere else there's just something that resonates different when you feel that the person who is writing it you know as you said found a little bit of something from themselves that they could give and I how much of yourself do you feel like is in your any of your characters and what parts in which characters because that's an easy question uh, <laughs> I I don't know I mean it's complicated I think There are lots of things about Meher and about some of the other characters and their kind of strength that I really relate to and that came from me. There's been, you know, I I come from, I'm quite a bad-tempered and cranky person, but I come from a culture where it's, you know, when you have elders or other people who aren't always that nice to you, you have to smile and be polite and kind of let it go because that's your role. You're the peacemaker. And so you end up learning other ways to manipulate situations, you know, And, and I brought that the table you know no way have I gone through anything like Meher but it it still allowed me to kind of explore that and explore that kind of dynamic which I'd seen written by people outside the culture but it's very different when you're in the culture and you're talking about the kind of the toxic patriarchy in your own culture because you don't want people to judge it in a way harsher than their own so I, I don't know it allowed me to kind of explore that and I've got the sequel for the book on my head a lot at the moment because I've been working on that and it's going to go through edits quite soon and in retrospect that one was really inspired by some things I've been through so one of my friends called it my grief book because I lost my dad soon before I got a contract for Empire of Sand and I think that really influenced how I wrote the second book so yeah basically I think a lot of the emotional stuff comes from me And then it kind of allows me to take kind of the smaller emotions that I experience in my life and then kind of amplify them into magic and death and things like that. So 
Yeah. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, but it sounds like, because you just said the words amplify them into magic and to death, and then on a very upbeat, yeah. So what you're telling me is, you <laughs> also have the latent capabilities to yourself to be a supervillain if you so choose. Oh, I would love, you know, I always say to my friends, if I had a superpower, I would be a supervillain, and I would do the sensible thing and go get a skull island somewhere, and just live on it, and invite other supervillains to hang out with me. And then if any kind of superhero came and bothered me, I would kill them. But apart from that, I would not cause any problems. See, you understand how it's supposed to work. I say the same thing and everybody thinks I'm crazy. And I would say, you're not getting invited to my compound. You don't have <laughs> the appropriate skill set. We can share a compound. I, I think, think we get on really well. And I like tea too. So this would happen. This could totally happen. <laughs> I like your cat. We'll keep her safe. I'll bring some tea. It'll be lovely. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. I like this the minute plan. we get superpowers. Oh God, my superpower is convincing people to do things they don't want to do, but thinking it was their own idea. That is a good superpower. My big day job before I quit was being a compliance officer, so trust me, I'm really good at it. Oof, oof, that sounds like a hard job. Yeah, I kept scotch in the house and wine, you know. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> and I come from I come from a family that has the whole, you know, you play your role, and I don't know how it seemed to be since I have the largest motor mouth but i was the one who was expected to hold their peace and hear what people out i mean it's this is a complete generalization it may not apply to your situation but i my general experience is it's always if there is a family with lots of boys and there is a girl the girl will be expected to hold her peace yep there we go mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm the only girl in my immediate family and in my extended family there's lots of girls but i thought those people were insane so i kept a distance you know, I was like, mm, no, you're crazy. I'm going to visit once a week. Love you. Bye, auntie. But um, Once a week is still pretty good. Yeah. Well, that was because my mother's like, I'm not going alone. Get in the car. <laughs> <laughs> but this, I think that's kind of one of the things when I read books like this and you see, you see all the different kinds of mothers that you put into this mm -hmm. book and they all kind of felt equal. You start to remember all the different kind of women in your life who you have a connection to and and what that connection and the added value it might have brought to your life. But then you also start thinking about the men in your life and what is that connection and is, you know, how did it add value? But then you also get and start doing this balancing act because the way that you played um, Mahara's anger at both her parents at different points in this book and her very justifiable bitterness that their choices had crafted her life in such a way that where she was ultimately going to be bound to one choice, which was really no choice whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I didn't necessarily expect to connect with, but you start to feel like, I'm like, you know what? It's like, as much as people feel like they have free will, it's like, there's one point in the book later there you have him or say, you know, a choice with a knife at your neck is no choice at all. And I really liked the way that you found ways to kind of not only work in the family dynamic, but you kept them realistic without making them toxic, even when they were messed up. And then the later part of the story where she has no choice but to mature at a much rapid, more rapid rate later. Mm -hmm. But you still found some kind of way to make all of the choices and the decisions, even the ones she wasn't making, feel real and make sense and still kind of have a familial connection because you understood that at the end of the day, her first choice was about protecting her family. And that felt really interesting. And I surprisingly connected with that more and that motivation more than I expected. And usually that's the kind of thing where I'm scoffing at and going, whatever. You made me care. I'm really glad I made you care. Kinda I'm glad. You, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. You're I'm not, not sorry at you're all. You're not sorry. You guaranteed I'm going to buy all your books. I'm buying yes. them all. <laughs> 
between you and kate howard cat howard i swear to god oh my god her writing is so beautiful right she got me with unkindness of magicians yeah and this got me pretty much the same way i was like okay i'll read the little snippet to see what's going on yeah three hours later (laughs) 300 pages later i haven't done any of the rest of my job thanks she's got a new like she's got a new short story collection out that i don't have yet and i'm just like must do edits then can buy yes that needs to be your next happiness i saw that your light your last happiness was wicked king um you definitely need to put her short stories i just picked it up and i read the first one i said i have to put this shit down or i'm not gonna i'm gonna get fired i have deadlines i can't read this right now um last time i messed around on one of her books i'd been i ended up in the bathtub for six hours at total because i finished the whole book and i was like how am i still sitting in the tub Oh, I've done the last book I did that with was um, Girls of Paper and Fire. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, God, that book broke me. Well, if it makes you feel good or bad or whatever, your book is one of those books. I did the same thing with this one when I picked it up, which is why I was like, I have to. Like I saw when people started talking about it in November and I saw their reviews. I'm like, no one's really talking about how very much no one but you could have written a story like this. And your magic, I mean, like, even the way you used bargains in here, it reminded me a little bit of another book I had read recently about the djinn. I'm sure you know which one I mean. I think I might know which book you mean. Little City of Brass. But the way that you... I love that book. I love that book. I almost didn't read that book because people kept trying to make me read that book. I I have a really fun story about that book that um, my mom hates me telling. But that's my cat. (laughs) sorry (laughs) she's meowing in the background um my mom was in hospital and she was high as a kite on um medication like Mm painkillers and she turned to me and she took my hand and she said tasha one day maybe you'll write as well as essay chakrabarti oh and i was like oh so harsh mom burn i know i know i know but i was kind of like she has a point but also you're my mom you're meant to lie about this shit that's your job (laughs) Yeah, you like you got one job, mom, and I gotta give you a red. That's a definite red card. <laughs> I mean, damn. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I think you do write as well. Oh, thank you. It's not true. <laughs> I get to be biased however I want to. Thank you very much. <laughs> you do, you do. But I think, to be honest, this sounds kind of weird, but it's one of the pleasures of writing that you read certain books and you go, "Oh my god, I could never have written this. This is so beautiful." And so good, and I'm so glad I live in a world with books this good. Okay, so I I love it when that happens. So you knew what I said when I finished your book, because hmm. <laughs> that's when I said I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just gonna delete my entire manuscript because this book <laughs> I just read, I'm gonna start all over. No, I'm I'm not blowing smoke up your behind. I'm like I have a thing for people who can do in an economy of words what it takes other people entire series to do, and you built. A world that was vivid it was real it was anchored the people in it were grounded not only in the society but in the magic and in the fantasy system that you built and you and i was all in before i was five chapters in with the world not just caring or wanting to know what was going to happen with her or what was happening next i cared about this world i was like what's going to happen to the city what do you mean there's a storm coming seriously i'm caring i don't even know what the hell it means yet now all i know is i'm like sandstorms can be dangerous i don't even know what's going on with the magic i'm just really worried about the you know the 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 air at this point i was like what's the weather people say because the way you described the city and what it looked like and i was like and and the way you arranged how people lived in the city and what mattered to them and 
you know, in just a few scenes, you had two people talking and then you realized one person is completely giving a coded message and all these warnings that this other person needs to heed, but they'll never know because they live in a cloistered setting. And I was like, that's pretty brilliant. And you're just so nice. Thank you. No one who knows me is going to believe that I am nice. <laughs> they all think <laughs> if I'm really not. They're like, she's really harsh and she doesn't like it. But no, that's that's but like that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. That's what I mean. It's like this book and the people who were in it, like I was all in. I was like, okay, cool. She's got this thing she does. And the fact that it was built around dancing, that you kept that element in and you built it into the magic made it that much better. And the fact that when you were describing what she was doing, it felt like it gave me an image in its head. So you may not think that you write as well as that other book, but as someone who got to read it and has sat here and tried to figure out how to fan cast and where they could go on location that would be just as cool as how you described it and trying to figure out what fabrics they needed to wear for her outfits, you do. Because I did all if of that. If you come up with a good fan casting, please let me know because I, Amon, I cannot fan cast for love or money. So please feel free to tell me at any time. I will give it a shot. Because I was like, this is amazing. I don't know what anybody's supposed to look like, but they all need to be brown. And that was the thing that was really cool about it. To actually legitimately sit here and say, I have to go and look up other people who do these things, who may be in the public sphere, who could fit these things, because I don't see any of them on a regular basis. I got really excited about the fact that, A, I hope your book gets sold for the rights and you make gobs of money and they turn it into a TV show and or movie and or something streaming that I can own. But B, they have to cast really brown people. I know. And okay, so when I was trying to come up with a Pinterest board for the book, that was when I realized the huge, well, I already knew that Indian cinema in particular is very colorist, Mm -hmm. but try and find a dark skinned Indian male actor. Try. I'll wait. Because you can't. There isn't one. I'm like, challenge accepted. As I know, I'm going (laughs) to fail it. He must also be attractive. Good luck. Dark skin Indian male actors. Really? All you're going to give me is Sindhil? Rath Mahari? Yeah, he's the only one that comes up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's a delightful one to come up. But I mean, he's lovely. He might be a little bit old. That's all. Yeah, but he doesn't really look that old in person. No, that's true. And he smells delightful in person. So could we just, we could probably just. Wait, you've smelled him in person? I met him. Yeah, he came here um, for. What? Yeah, I managed not to completely fangirl out like an idiot. I thought I kept it together gracefully. Maybe not. It's possible I failed. Yeah, he came here. He has two collections of short stories that I'm really hoping they turn into an episodic TV show. And uh, I think the first one is Her Nightly Embrace, where it's about a a PI or a guy who falls into being a PI and it's set in London. They're pretty brilliant stories. And so he came here with the author who actually wrote the books because they're inspired on him and the character that they want him to play. And they came to talk about at my local bookstore, which it would be great if someone could bring you over and you could come here and then like, I could be in person. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I haven't been to America since I was 18 and I am now 29. So it's been a long time. Okay. I need you to look like you're 29. I've seen your picture. You do not look 29. That's rude. <laughs> that's against all the laws. Airbrushing is powerful. <laughs> I, I doubt it's all airbrushing, but now I just have extra bitter and resentment. Okay. Yeah. You're right. Nope. Nope, not a single one comes up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've even looked on the British scene, nothing. Wow. There's someone has actually started a list called 461 Possible Darker Dark-Skinned Men for Book Characters on Screen. 
please God. That is a good list. Holy Jesus, this is a really good list. <laughs> God bless this Pinterest <laughs> I will send you the link. I mean, it's all different ethnicities and races, but this is a glorious list of brown people. Good God. But yeah, mm-mm. one guy, dark-skinned Indian, male, attractive. One. So you're yeah. right. Mm-hmm. But it means they'll have to go and find, you know, new people, right? Yeah, I, that would be great. <laughs> they'll totally do that for us, won't they? <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't even keep that hope alive. But <laughs> I'm really hoping that more books that come into the stream and they come into the world that uh, I'm totally going to have to edit this conversation. We went like a, down a thirst trap. It's so terrible. But <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but honestly, I really think that they'll st- hopefully, I mean, as much as we're on Twitter and you see fan casting and it's how often is women go down thirst traps trying to find having conversations like this, particularly about books for book boyfriends and book girlfriends. It would be really great if the people who make movies started listening. And realize that if they wanted to keep our market share and our money, that they need to start giving us what we need and what we want to see on screen. So, you know, you know, they're making um, the Grishaverse series with Six of Crows and things like that. Yes. Uh, Well, that series has has people thirsting after very specific actors, I gather. Oh, yeah. And um, apparent and like, I think a lot of people are hoping that they'll actually cast some of those people into the roles. So we'll have to see. Maybe they'll do it. If anyone's going to follow the social media like guidance, it's going to be Netflix. I hope so. Well, Netflix has been really good about, you know, wanting to capture a broad market share. And they start, they're starting to at least realize on some level that that's not going to happen if they keep not respecting characters. Yeah. Like, there's so many times that you can watch a character and you're like, in what world can someone who's vampire white play the girl from Greece? Or from Egypt. I'm like, she's so white, she's translucent. Like I'm still not over Avatar The Last Airbender. I will never be over that film. That doesn't exist. It's a fever dream. It's a collective fever dream. (laughs) We were all drugged and we're just waiting for the drugs to leave our system. It did not happen. It's just it's a mass hallucination across the multiverse. Maybe if I say that enough, that'll come true. Maybe it'll come true, yes. Yeah, I'm super bitter about that movie. But that's the kind of thing. They have the perfect opportunity. And somebody gives them something, they already have a built-in audience, and then they still shit the bed, which is why I put more hope on books at this point and on stories that are coming from unique angles. Like, I've read a lot of really interesting books that there's not really that hard a draw. But even if you go back to some of the older ones that make bigger movies, like the Hunger Games trilogy, anybody who read the books knew the districts were divided at the end of the day according to ethnicity and that Katniss was indigenous. And if you read it, I mean, you know, everybody got mad about Rue, but I know a lot of people who were like, how the hell are you going to sit here and tell me this girl uses a boa arrow, tracks, lives in a particular area that if we paying attention was directly at the end of the trail of tears and she's white. Really? We doing that today. We're doing that today. I didn't get that at all, but yeah, I I wouldn't though, I guess, because yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I only. Yeah, we don't, we don't really have an indigenous Mm. people in the UK. No. Mm-mm. No, that doesn't really excuse me not knowing, but that's interesting. But if you're just kind of looking at something and you feel like someone's just giving you the character traits or giving you the equipment that someone has to use in order for their life to work and you don't kind of blow it out. I noticed it because I started paying attention to what they were saying the people from all the different districts look like for the volunteers for tributes. And I mm-hmm. and I started noticing a trend in the tributes. I was like, oh, so the two from three are both 
black. The two from the capital are white. The two from over here are white working class. I was like, is that what happens after your post-apocalyptic problems? Everybody just clanned up. You forced everybody to clan up for the things that you needed from the districts, what you worked them to their strengths, literally. And so when the movie got made and that wasn't a message that was being preserved for the music, because that was a whole different sub storyline for me in the book, you know? Mm-hmm. And it and it changed the way that I viewed what was happening with the tributes and who went after whom and who was willing to make an alliance with whom in the games. All of those things kind of factored into matters and why it was such a big deal about Katniss and Rue. Wow, that really adds a completely amazing dimension to the book and to the film. It would have made the film much better. Right. Thank it, you. It's why I yeah. really liked the books. It's why I finished the books all the way through, even though Catching Fire literally made me want to set it on fire because I couldn't believe you could make that many dumbass decisions in a row and not end up in a grave. I was like, how is she not... <laughs> dead like i don't understand and it's also based on battle royale which is an asian film so i was like come on she's better than this so i started to notice those types of things but i got tired of always having to dig for those things when you knew because the author flat out says she's like i don't know how people miss that i separated the district set she says that now but you know that could be some her hindsight having the years to reach 2020 and her being okay saying it out loud but they weren't really pushing that when the movie came out there's no way to pretend when it comes to your book yeah. Where this story is set, who these people are, what are the cultural and familial, you know, influences and impulses that move them. And the way that you have this whole idea of the law and the faith and those being the things that mattered for the empire to stay in balance versus what was needed to be in balance in the, the world, particularly for the people who were being subjugated, is just a vastly unique concept that's so at the heart of your story that anybody who's writing your screenplay, if it's not you, is going to need to call you because if they don't, <laughs> they know they're going to screw it up and then we're going to come find them like we're all Liam Neeson. <laughs> I I just keep thinking about the point you made about like if if you put race into a book unless it's explicit unless you say and Katniss is indigenous people will find a way to ignore that and not include it in any kind of adaptation or even in their imagination and yeah yeah and it's like that I mean on a basic level that really sucks and on another, it, it kind of means that you realize how often people will put diversity in, but not take the step of making it explicit. Like when I was writing the book, I realized I was really struggling to describe skin color in a nice way. Like when you talk about white skin, there's so many different words for it, like her smooth ivory skin or, you know, now I can't think of any, but the, you know, like there's my one from a little while ago where I said she's vampire white to the point of translucence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, she went as white as chalk. But when you think about dark, dark brown skin, there just aren't that many words that aren't something like chocolate, yeah. which wouldn't work in the context in a, in a, in a world-building sense, but also just isn't kind of what I'm going for. Like, it, it has certain connotations, which is fine, but then you also want words that have different connotations, like, I don't know, just something else. And, and I had to actually think about it and come up with different ways of describing skin. But I thought it was really good that you managed to avoid even the latent fetishizing of referring to people of color on the darker end of the spectrum in terms of food. Like, you know, you found... <laughs> you found things in the environment that people could recognize and identify and you know they you made a comparison so the fact that you made the effort when you could have gone the easy route and no one probably would have flagged it well okay 
we would have flagged it because we we just said something to you but (laughs) (laughs) your greater reading audience would just kind of have gone along with it because that's how they're used to receiving Mm -hmm. that information it's not going to change until writers do what you did is actually take the time to sit down to think it through yeah yeah which which kind of sucks um and I mean, for me as well, I, I also had a responsibility to do it right, whether I did or not, because I'm, you know, like every society where people are brown or black has colorism, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm on the lighter end of the spectrum. And I remember and I know how that used to impact me as a kid because there were kids who were darker skinned. And I remember at school, there was a lot of that stuff about how lighter skin is pretty and it was never really said, but people knew it. And it's very disturbing and toxic. And you start thinking about where that comes from and how that influences people and and how much it sucks. Like, does it come from in your culture or from outside your culture? Yeah. I don't know. It's it's interesting to me that, you know, like when we talk about own voices work, no work is truly completely own voices. I think you're always going to write outside of exactly what you are and you have to do a little bit of work to make sure you don't screw it up. Well, I don't believe that anybody mm-hmm. should be denied to the right to write in anything that they want or to talk about their own story from their own perspective. I think sometimes we, you know, people of color have gotten a little particular Mm. about that in the sense of that's our story you can't touch it or or you can't talk about that because it has all these other connotations that aren't good for the other people who were in there I don't care that you're talking about it from your perspective you have to talk about it in light of these other things because we matter and I don't think that the person who's telling their own story should have to skew it to the point to where they start playing, you know, political games with how, with somebody else's memories or with somebody else's ideology or even, Mm. you know, their fictional world that they've built. But on the other hand, what you said really holds true. It's like, we have to think about what are our own inherent biases? What are our own unconscious biases? I think the most recent conversation I got in with somebody was about Green Book and they are like, oh, it's a white saver movie and I hate this. And I looked at him and said, it's Tony the Lips story. It's the fat Italian guy from New York story. So it's, all his perceptions it's how he described things mm-hmm. it's what stuck out as thing as important to him how he told it to his kid but the movie Mahershala Ali was so dynamic and gigantic as Dr. Shirley the black man who was also in the car with Tony the Lip that he stole the entire movie and so people came out of there feeling like they were supposed to be watching a movie about Dr. Shirley and because the movie didn't handle him with the appropriate level of gravitas and fact-driven storytelling from his point of view they completely forgot it was never supposed to be that and they're angry like very very angry (laughs) and I don't think we should get to the point where you can say okay you're white but this implicates brown people so you can't tell this story or you're brown but this implicates white people and it implicates them in a negative way so you have to be careful so you don't make anybody uncomfortable And, you know, you didn't do that. Like, you took the time to figure out different ways to describe your characters. Like, you don't hide the fact that this is an imperialistic empire that's seeking to hold on to its power at all costs, up to and including the subjugation and complete and utter abuse of the talents and, you know, heritage of an entire native people. You don't hide any of that. That's actually the basis of the story. And within all of that, you get all of these other elements. You get this... The, you know, this relationship about mothers, you get this relationship about sisters, 
you get, and even the difference, you get this relationship about people who had nothing else and were given something by someone when no one else was looking for them. So of course they're going to follow him. Of course they believe what he was going to do. Of course his benevolence is going to be almost sacrosanct in their eyes. And that's a big thing, like, especially in the United States, you know, we have a tendency to let people fail up and then deify them once they're there so we can yeah. make our mistake look okay. Or I mean, the the UK pol- political situation is not that much better. I can't really... I wasn't talking you know. politics, but I think it's funny that you thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> it says a lot. But you know what I mean? That's why I said your book felt contemporary. It felt relevant without you trying to push an agenda or to tell me, like, I should be able to go back through. And if I wanted to write a paper about your pa- paper, about your book, pull out the main points and identify all of the subtext and, you know, contemporary sociopolitical points that you were trying to make or, you know, infer or what's the allegory of your book. You could... I think you would be slightly confused what people said the allegory in your book was, but none of that ever felt like you were taken outside of the world. There was never a disconnect from what you were doing, but there were very relevant, you know, sensibilities. There were moments that resonate with you. You can look and say, see, it's like everybody, like you said, you want to believe in, you know, the hopefulness of man, but you're very cynical about human nature because no matter where you go, it seems you can always run into a story about colonialism that matches, even if you're talking about different, you know, periods in time and different groups of people who did it. So I really appreciated that when you put it into the book and it made me think about things that are happening in contemporary setting and and the perspective that you take on when you're evaluating them. And then, you know, what could you possibly do to redress your own habits and bias if you don't want to end up in a situation where the only choice you have is one that you're making with a knife at your neck. That was really beautifully said. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I'm recording it because I probably wouldn't remember to be able to write it down later. (laughs) It's, you know, I mean, if I'm going to take a little bit of a better point of view than people are terrible and colonialism is everywhere, I, I think even in awful systems, there are people who try and do the right thing and try and give one another choices and respect. Or I have read books where either you make the brave, quote unquote, brave choice that could destroy you or you're weak. And I don't like that. I don't like the idea that there's only one way to fight and survive. And I think that if there's anything I want to do with the book, it's show that you can be strong in lots of very different ways. And sometimes being strong is just putting one foot in front of the other until things change. Yeah, we're not really good with incremental change. No. We're not really good. We pretend it doesn't exist anywhere on Earth. Yes. <laughs> but, but I liked all of that. And um, I don't know, we got a little serious, but not. But yeah, I mean, the Dawson's great. (laughs) No, I mean, all of it's really good. It's all really good and it works really well together. But that's what I mean. We can sit here and we can parse out all the different things that your book kind of evokes as a feeling, but it never stopped being a great fantasy story. I'm so glad that's what I love about a good book. That's one of the first primary things. Did this book still entertain me? Did I enjoy what I read? Do I care? Did I go back and read it again at three o'clock in the morning when I should be going to sleep? Yes. Yes, I did. You know, (laughs) (laughs) Have I thrown this book at anyone's face and demanded that they purchase it? Have I one clicked this book into anyone's um, um, uh, Amazon cart and had it delivered to their house? Again, the answer would be yes to all of those questions. But, you know, at the end of the day, (laughs) uh, well, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass. I did that. I have a tendency to do that. If you let me know your Amazon account and I think there's something you need to read, I might buy it for you and send it to you from your own account. That way I know your address is right. (laughs) That that is... (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it was one of my favorite books from last year. I'm 
I'm so thrilled. I really, really am. And I mean, they always say, don't they, write write the book that only you could write? And hopefully, I feel like that's what I did. I just, I, I just really enjoy doing it. It's something that I enjoy doing and I hope I get to write loads of South Asian fantasy in the future and that people will read it. And I feel very lucky to be writing at a time when I can do that, frankly. I remember when I was at university and I was, I studied English and creative writing, which was a choice. You can say that. And I remember reading N.K. Jemisin for the first time. It just blew my mind because I'd never read, frankly, I'd never read non-white fantasy at all. I was like, oh my God, it exists and it's good. It's really good. And from there, I started finding out about authors that I'd never heard of, like Octavia Butler. And and I really felt like there was no place for my stories in fantasy. And that was the moment I realized that there was a space or that I could carve it. You end up, I think, when, you, when you're writing something that only you could write or that comes from a cultural background that's not that prevalent in fantasy, you kind of, you end up trying to find the right words and the right images you may not be able to find them in other things you've read. So I was very lucky as well that Bollywood exists because I could use that as a basis as well because they have Mughal India-inspired films that I could use. So all of that kind of helped. I've just rambled at you, but yeah. It's useful rambling. It's okay. I love things. <laughs> and you can never go wrong when you run into Octavia Butler and you realize that... Because, okay, my parents moved me to the South when I was 10 years old from living on the West Coast on a military base where there are certain behaviors, attitudes, and words that are just not used if you don't want to end up in the brig. And so when I got down South and I realized exactly how different A, being a civilian was, B, being a civilian who is Black, and C, being a girl who uses vowels and ends her words with the R when it needs it in the South. Um, yeah, I was completely convinced that I had got thrown into a, through time portal and I was in a different world and my mom's like you should read Octavia Butler she's got a whole book about you know getting thrown back in time as a black person and you'll feel much better because you didn't get thrown all the way back to slavery and I was like really that's that's supposed to make me feel better and then I read <laughs> the book that's a mom thing to say <laughs> yeah it's totally a mom thing to say she's like the library's a mile away you're allowed to walk there have at it but I read the book and I was like this is amazing and she's right it could be worse <laughs> <laughs> I just need to adjust to, a, to you know, a different way of thinking, a different speed and a different mode of life. But again, I also discovered the library and all the lovely things there. And from Octavia Butler came Nalo Hopkins. And, and then my mom, she's like, you should read this person. I was like, I don't want to read Alex Huxley. I don't care about the autobiography of Malcolm X. She's like, as angry as you are, you will before you're halfway through, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, my mom piggybacked lessons on like trying to throw me here. You know, this is black people do exist and they are on this premise. And, you know, the South wasn't always like that. Or you should go always read this and read the Gone with the Wind just so you know how, how black people actually weren't. And, you know, I was like, really? That that's I need to go read about Scarlett O'Hara so I can know we won't all run around screaming. I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. But <laughs> The characterization. That book, and, I hate that book. Yeah, yeah, we should all hate that book. Only <laughs> hated more by you know Uncle Tom's Cabin, the book everyone likes to talk about, and no one wants to remember that the solution that she had to the black people problem in America was to send them all back to Africa. Moral of the story. But um, that's totally the point of the book. And the original name was Life Life Among the Lowly. She didn't hide it. And so when uh -oh. I started realizing all these different things but there was a place where I could go and find other things in other ways that's how I ended up getting into things that were history because I didn't like history either until I started reading fantasy especially historical fantasy where someone had taken a real world or a time period and then overlaid their magic system and their characters on it and I was like well let's go see how much was real and I thought it was fascinating because then I would the world got bigger and any book that makes my world bigger is a good book oh yeah 
100% agree. Um, weirdly enough, I think one of the genres that really opened up history to me, apart from everything else, was romance. You got because... a, a good regency, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. It's like funny because romance gets a bad rap, and I know it does, but it also, it was one of the most diverse genres I read as a teenager and a young adult, and also one of the ones that did history the best, because they actually care about getting the historical details right. Not all authors, but some. And I remember reading, well, recently I read Courtney Milan, and she has suffragettes and working class people, and, you know, dukes as well. Obviously there are dukes. And one of her books is concerned with the opium wars, and it's just really cool, and it opened up history for me. But I also read, I can't remember what age I was, when I think in the in the library, of course, I came across Indigo by Beverly Jenkins. That'll do it. And it was... <laughs> You knew it, yeah. Mm -hmm. I love Beverly <laughs> Jenkins. I love her so much. And I, you know, as a British Asian in England, I knew nothing about um, American slavery, even though, you know, the British were involved. It, it's just not something we were taught about. I still remember when, I think, I can't remember the hero's name or anything, when he took her hands, which were dyed with indigo. And I just like, I, I lost it you know, tears, the lot. And yeah, it just, it opened history up for me and it opened up diversity for me. It was amazing. And fun fact, Beverly Jenkins said she liked my book. So my life is complete. Oh, right Pretty now. much. See, you're good. You're good all the way around. Romance Landia <laughs> loves you. <laughs> you are good for life. But that's the same thing. I think the first time I read a book that had a accurately depicted Moor was a romance book. It's also the first time I realized how many Moors people had been in service to the crown and therefore Black people would have been affirmatively within the certain echelons of UK of British rule and parts of, I was like, there are black people everywhere. They were ambassadors. Yep. They were emissaries. My mother was like, oh God. <laughs> I was like, I need to I go to the library. Like you. <laughs> but yeah, and then, then of course, shortly thereafter that I discovered Hannibal and she was like, I can't with you. Just go away. Just go away. <laughs> She's like, and I was like, I need an elephant. She's like, no, you don't. I was like, I could totally do what he did if I had elephants. I'd have a much better plan. She's like, you can't pray risk anymore. You're just, you just, I don't know what's happening with you, but no more risk and stay out of my book stash. But yeah, but that's, but, but like as much as it was real and it was fun. Yeah. You probably would like my mom. She's insane. And she humors me up to a point And then she reminds me that I am in fact more insane than she is, but it's her fault. Cause she made me. And <laughs> But like, you know, you get into these things and you realize, I didn't know that you were supposed to be ashamed to read romance. So I used to take them and read them on the school bus going to school. I'd get sent to the office because I was reading smut. And I was like, I'm not reading a sex scene. We're talking about France and history. I'm like, we're doing history of the non-Western world. This book is set in France. It's fine. You know? And she's like, yeah, that's not how this works. But you're okay. right. It was some of the most accurate depictions of different points in history. I wish left of them were obsessed with Napoleon, but it was still accurate. You know, and, and Big Ran, at least the majority of romance novels, I know not all, but the majority, suggest that sex should be consensual and should be fun. Whereas I cannot say that's true of a lot of literary fiction that we are encouraged to read yeah, as young. No. Yeah. Yeah, they're big. That, But that was one of the other things that I liked about this book. I liked the way that you leaned into that particular trope mm -hmm. and you didn't reverse it so much as you obliterated it. <laughs> I appreciate it greatly. And I think when people get to that part of the story and they understand like one, the true costs of, you know, consent and choice and, and what that can mean to your life, but also what it can mean to a personal relationship. I thought that was a nice little unique twist that I really appreciated that I'm seriously trying not to spoil. I'm really glad and I will not comment too much on it so I don't spoiler it either, but thank you. 
No, it was pretty freaking brilliant. I was like, oh, oh. And then I'm sitting here. I'm like, this is totally going to change everything. It's totally going to change everything. And I was like, I'm muttering again out loud. To people <laughs> that can't hear me. Yeah. So it, it really worked. And, and I haven't really, you haven't really read anything with that kind of understanding or use of agency for its main male character and its main female character. And then to use it on other levels when you're talking about the people who've come before and the bigger picture when it came to, at one point in the book when Maher is free-ish, another situations where that th- agency was threatened. And then what you did with that, that also leaned into a very big trope about, you know, the reunitings of mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and, you know, what's that supposed to mean and the big, huge, you know, prodigal son or prodigal parent kind of trope you leaned into that and yeah. then you just told that one to kiss your ass and that made me even happier i do i do love a good trope and i think yeah i think a lot of people love a good trope and i think if you use a trope right it allows you to kind of look at things that are i mean because they're tropes because they're universal right because they mean something to people so i guess what i'm trying to say is i use a lot of tropes and i'm glad that i managed to kind of subvert them a little bit as well I mean, even when you didn't subvert them, you used them in the way that it was so reasonable that it stopped being a trope and it just started being life. And that's when I don't mind tropes. When someone wants to, like the whole, like the whole, you know, the wicked stepmother theme that's towards the beginning of this book, that could have been super tropey and really annoying, but maybe five minutes into it, you realizing this is a nuanced, complex relationship between two extremely three-dimensional people. And you're like, this isn't a trope. This is a shitty relationship that... <laughs> totally exists around the world you know what i mean like you didn't rest on your laurels and just kind of try to make one evil and the other sad or one suffer and the other you know maliciously pleased and even with there being this insidious undertone there was still a perfectly reasonable explanation for why she behaves the way she does and that to me makes it not a trope and simply makes it facts excellent you know i'm pleased by that you didn't pull out an apple and have her polish it at any point in this story (laughs) but she did at some point release a breath that she didn't know she was holding which i think is a trope that a lot of people hate or a cliche yeah basically i did that one i don't care it worked because i (laughs) held my breath with her so shut up (laughs) i'm reading the book going i'm like no 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 i'm like okay cool 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 so it's fine we do that like there are some ways if you can get your audience to mirror a reaction that one of your characters having that's not a cliche anymore. You've literally sucked us down into a little time suck where A, none of our work is getting done. B, we're going to lose track of time. And C, we're going to forget that the people that we're reading about are people we're reading about. Oh, that's the best thing to hear. That's that's really good. So I don't I don't think those are cliches when you actually make me forget or that she can't hear me when I'm yelling at her. He said run, you know? <laughs> <laughs> now is not the time to question wench. Do as you told for like, you literally get to the point in a book that's about agency. That's about choice. That's about willfulness. It's about being in balance. And you want to, at one point scream, just do what he says. Like it's a complete complete opposite of everything else that you've been reading about for the whole time. But it's like, you know, when you watch a film and in the middle of a climactic fight or something, they stop to have a heart to heart. I'm always like, what are you doing? Yeah. There's no time for this. Yeah, get on with things yeah i'm like that's when you stab him he stopped you stab him that's what happens this is fighting what are you doing we're not friends here yes, <laughs> yes. so clearly we can also watch movies together yes <laughs> just not when anyone else is around who may want to hear not us screaming at the tv or the monitor it's fine that's what captions are for it's fine. fine see you understand i do yes okay i've held you hostage i really appreciate you talking to me um 
I, I don't think this book got nearly as much hype as it should have, but I feel that way about a lot of books from authors. But I do think it's going to change the way that a particular type of historical fiction that likes to use um, magic from the blood is going to have to be told because people are going to have to up their game. Yes. I, I just want to corner the market on blood magic, really. So cool. I'm down for that because the way you do it is better. And I did see that uh, Realm of Ash is going to pick up with Mahara's sister, Grown. It's going to pick up with Arwa about eight years down the line. Okay, so eight years in. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited. I'm deliberately you- not reading the teaser I have in the back of this book because if I do read the teaser, yeah, I'm, I will go through withdrawals. Yeah, I can't even promise that arcs are going to be available soon because it's not been edited yet. So <laughs> it's still got a while. It's fine. I'll stay. I'll wait and you Thank know, you. be angsty. <laughs> but no, what I'll do is I'll just recommend this book to lots of people I think should read it, which would be everyone. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, please do, because the more people who buy it, the more likely Orbit are to let me write more of them, really. Right. And I'm I'm down for you writing more because I, I just haven't read the way that you do a voice. And I know that sounds all soupy, stupid and gushy, but whatever. It doesn't. It's lovely. It's lovely to hear that because I think, you know, you know, writers, we're all neurotic. It's it's nice to hear positive stuff, like because in your head, you're like, no, I've got to be practical. I've got to be down to earth. I just got to get on with things and improve my craft. And then if people say nice things, it's just it really lifts your, you know, week, day, year. Well, time yeah well picture me willing to to cheerlead for for you being practical and getting down to things but remembering that you're pretty damn awesome <laughs> thank you and i hope your cat is okay she'll be fine we just gotta medicate her now you sound like my mom talking about me <laughs> <laughs> i'm a little resentful i'm like i feel attacked and that was about <laughs> Thanks for joining me. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Tasha Suri and please be sure to pick up Empire of the Sands. I'll be back soon with more interviews, book news, book talk, and random things that I can convince authors to spend some time talking to me about um, pretty soon.